So hello and welcome to another episode of Warrior Diplomacy, where we discuss the most relevant issues of international politics on a monthly basis. I'm very happy to be here today with our two English co-hosts, um, Christian Carley. Hey, how are you? And Fabio Almada. Hey guys, good to be back. So Fabio, you told me today that you know whose favorite podcast is this. Well, today's uh, character of today's show is going to be really interesting because it would be the favorite podcast of Henry Kissinger, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I know that Chris will not, uh, he's not a fun, he's not very fond of him, but he had made some really interesting top, uh, notes on the situation that we'll discuss in this episode. So I thought that maybe this could be his favorite podcast or not. So we shall see. Let's see. I think his views are highly controversial in, in this panel. You were recently in Vienna. You visited me. Yeah, yeah. That was a, it was an interesting vacation. I've been traveling around Europe a little bit. I've been two weeks out of Brussels. And to be honest, I want to go back. I'm a little bit tired of traveling. But Vienna was amazing. Aramis, thank you so much for hosting me. It was a good experience uh, to be there with you, with your family and We had really nice conversations looking at the landscape. And right now I'm in London. This is my last stop. I was in Poland before, and I was really close to, to the border with Ukraine. And, and uh, uh, today's uh, guest, uh, we were talking about maybe visiting Kiev. At the end, I didn't do it, but it would, be, it would have been a really interesting travel for sure. And what about you, Chris? You've been also traveling around, no? Um, yeah, uh, for a short trip back home to Norway, celebrated uh, National uh, Constitution Day on the 17th of May, which is always a blast. And uh, this time, of course, with an extra fire going because it's been two years of not being able to celebrate that like we usually do in Oslo. So it was very good. Had some friends from, from Brussels come visit and uh, they really enjoyed their stay as well. Uh, after that, went to Berlin for a quick uh, weekend trip, which was also very, very cool, exciting. Got to see, of course, a lot of historical sites and also uh, just enjoying the city there. So after that, being back in Brussels has been really nice. Can't complain, really. And you, Armis, you have good news as well, right? Yeah, I mean, good and sad news at the same mm -hmm. time, because in the last episode, I mentioned that I was going to work in Georgia in Tbilisi, where I would have studied the, the role of the war over there. But unfortunately, there were a number of complications and hence I had to decide and um, to abort that mission. I decided to accept an offer from Leiden University, where I'll be doing my master's degree in international relations with a focus to modern conflict. And um, yeah, I still hope that I will be able to work in Georgia one day. I'm, I'm frankly a little quite sad that, that I can't go to Georgia, but at the same time, I'm, I'm really happy to doing my master's degree in Leiden. So much about ourselves. Nice. I'm very happy that we have a really interesting and known guest to this podcast. Fabio, can you introduce Oleksi, today's guest? Yes, for sure, for sure. Abis. Well, I'm really pleased uh, to have Alexi back at the podcast. Uh, we met uh, some months ago. Uh, we recorded in November of last year when the tensions between U Ukraine and Russia were accumulating in the border. And back then, as many other geopolitical analysts, we thought that maybe Russia was not going to be reckless enough to invade Ukraine. However, uh, they proved everyone of us wrong. And since then, actually, I think that I've, I've experienced this war in a really personal and, and more Uh, close uh, level because of him and all of his stories. He's been traveling around Ukraine and recording and, and letting the Spanish-speaking world to know a little bit more about Ukraine and everything that has happened. Oleksiy is an analyst of international relations in a Ukrainian think tank called Ad Astra. He's a close friend of the podcast of myself. And in the last months, as I, I just said, he's been uh, going around the, the country as a journalist with Spanish-speaking media to cover what's been happening in the war. So, Oleksi, it's it's a pleasure to have you here back at, at the podcast. It's great that you that I see you're healthy, same as your family, and, and all well. And, well, I just want to start this saying how I, I just don't have the words how to express how sorry I am for everything that uh, your people has been going through through the last months. So I, I feel really sorry about that, and I just don't know how to express that. But anyway, it's just a pleasure to have you here, and, and great. So please uh, tell us about yourself. How are you? 
Hi, hello, everybody. Um, thank you one more time for inviting me. And uh, I would say that uh, this period of time since November till uh, June, it's like one moment, one day, and uh, the whole country in Ukraine is living uh, currently in the 24th of February. A lot of people didn't feel in any way uh, spring. So we are, yeah, we are in summertime. And uh, yeah, I've done some, some trips around Ukraine and it's like, habit back and uh, there and back again. For me, it was Holexi to the front line and back again. Yeah, I can't wait to get in more detail to that. We'll do a short introduction to Into the War now, and then we'll get to that um, a little closer. War has entered its 100th day. And what has happened so far is that Putin's aggression has been met with a response that few imagined possible, especially from a brave Ukrainian population unwilling to see their country fall, but also from Western countries that have given them political, economic and material support. Russia's large but inefficient army has been driven back across the north of the country, having failed to take the capital Kiev, but it still holds on to substantial gains in the eastern Donbas region and in the south, where it has seized a land bridge connecting the previously stolen Crimean Peninsula with Russia itself. Ukrainian President Zelensky said the war in Ukraine will be won on the battlefield, but can only end through negotiations. So when will the fighting stop and on what terms? So before we start analyzing this just unjustified invasion, Oleksiy, can you tell us about how you have lived through the war and what have you experienced and where have you been? Yeah, the funny thing is that our last meeting I said um, I have a lot of doubts of are about the war and uh, I was sure, quite sure that uh, it won't happen. Uh, but yeah, a lot of things changed to February and then to June where we, he, when we are right now. Uh, for me, the experience of war was uh, mainly in Kiev and the capital. And uh, the experience of different parts of Ukraine, of different cities are totally different. For example, in Lviv, in Western part of Ukraine, the experience of war was quite tranquil and relaxed in some ways. And in Kiev, it was more complicated. But for example, in Kharkiv, it was uh, very harsh and very nervous and strong. For me, basically, the the, the very war was uh, in sometimes air raids alarms and some calls to supermarkets to the pharmacies because people were in panic. Uh, they were trying to buy everything they could. They were searching for some needed medicines for needed uh, food and so on. Sometimes we heard uh, artillery fire. Uh, was it Ukrainian artillery or was it Russian? It, it depends on, on the age. And then after after one month of such blockade in Kyiv, because every, everybody was gone from the city and all the shops, all the facilities, all the establishments, they were closed. So basically you have some food, you have some medicines, and you are all the time at home. You are listening to the sirens, you are listening to the artillery fire, and from time to time you have to hide in your in the basement of your house uh, because of some bombardments. When Russians you were retreated from the key region, the overall picture in the capital was more and more quiet, and then people started to get back and the normal life, everyday life uh, also got back in, in some ways. And after I started to work as a fixer for different Spanish speaking overall, just world media. And uh, I started to travel to the key region cities, to Chernihiv, to Kharkiv, to Odessa, Mykolaiv. And I saw the war um, closely because I had a lot of conversations with people who who were witnesses, direct witnesses of Russian war crimes, of Russian occupying occupying re regime, of um, different soldiers. I saw a lot of burned um, tanks, armored vehicles, destroyed houses, uh, some shells, some rockets, parts of missiles, tractiles, and so on. And uh, I understood that honestly, war didn't came to Kiev to the capital. Um, the war occurred in other areas, and and we had a huge huge luck to not to see what real war is. So 
I I think I saw more war experience than in other cities, and uh, I spent like three nights in Kharkiv, and uh, these nights were quite difficult because it was completely silent and completely dark uh, city uh, up with absolutely no sounds, with absolutely no lights and in the street, and you hear all the time like not one hour or two hours a day, but you hear all the time artillery fire, and uh, I imagined I I thought at this moment there are near Nearly 500,000 people who stayed in Kharkiv, and they listen this soundtrack all the day. They live in these conditions all the time, all two or three months. That experience was very interesting and unrepeatable, I would say. And what was it like getting used to the war? Is or can you get used to the war? How was your personal experience? It was quite easy because in two weeks you more or less get used to the war, and. Uh, first week was quite harsh because I didn't want to eat I didn't almost didn't sleep I almost didn't do nothing I was just laying in, in my bathroom because I was hiding from from potential bombardments and reading some news was like what, what happened where Russians are but then you realize that all right we are in the war war is long story you you have to work when in, in some way you have to help your country or you have to go to the military and uh, then you just you don't react to the explosions or air raid sirens as you did it uh, the first time because you you have this kind of experience like twice a day four times a day five times a day and then you just didn't get scared in in any other form uh it's very hard to to kind of figure out if what you're saying are the right things and and the way that you are not talking alexi it's Correct me if I'm wrong, but even though like we're here, we're having a, a nice conversation, smiling and stuff, but it must be, you know, of course, horrible on the inside at times thinking about like the actual conditions that are, are happening in your country. So deep solidarity with that from, from all of us I, and, and I yeah. hope it resolves soon. Oh, yeah. yeah, not to mention what people in the Donbass are going through where you were traveling and access to food, to basic needs, um, especially in the Russian controlled but also in Ukrainian controlled territory is um, much more difficult just to put that um, in, in perspective. But um, I would suggest that um, we zoom a little out um, after we've heard of those great insights of the human dimension and the suffering of ordinary and innocent people in this conflict. And um, we will switch to the second section of this podcast. So in this section, we will take a look at the bigger picture of all of this. We will explore how the war has developed in general, over which territory are the countries fighting over, who is gaining the upper hand, and what role is the Western military support playing in this conflict. Russian strategy at the beginning of the war was to decapitate the government and they tried to invade the north and the east. But uh, as we know, the, this invasion trying to take Kiev out did not work out. And in the last uh, month, uh, Russia has shifted its strategy back towards uh, the east and concentrated in the, in the Donbas region. They also tried to seize uh, Mar Mariupol in the south, which is a strategic place because it connects uh, Russia's landmass with Crimea, which they illegally occupied in 2014. So if we look at the map of Ukraine, uh, Russia is uh, trying its offensive in the eastern region. And the, the battle right now uh, we can see uh, in the city of Severodonetsk. So uh, basically this city is now uh, mostly under Russian control. And we have seen also seen Russian Navy blocking uh, Ukrainian ships in the, um, in the sea, right? Like uh, all these uh, ships that want to trade that should take the grain uh, towards ports. So we can probably see a, a food crisis in the coming months, which is quite uh, worrying for the world right now. So in, as a general situation, that's that's um, that's what's been happening the last months. Of course, that the, the war is still ongoing and negotiations have uh, have been up and down, but nothing concrete has uh, been developed. And Chris, when, when we hear this description and when we think especially of the beginning of the war, then we might think of the Russian army 
as or the Russian military as someone who is not able to enforce its strategy, who is steadily losing ground and hence the war. And what do you make of these thoughts? How capable is the Russian military when it comes to defending or gaining new territory? Um, yeah, I think that, uh, that that basically is something that came as a surprise for many during the progression of the war, as as reports dur during the ongoing situation has uh, shown that the Russian army is significantly weakened by the brave defense of the Ukrainian people that are fighting to protect their country. And uh, I think that also came as a very big surprise to to Russian military officials, to Putin himself, who who I think were suspecting this to be much more of an easy operation that would go without that much problems. And they they are seeing uh, significant losses that I don't think that they were anticipating. And so that even even though the the Russian army, of course, is at a huge numeric advantage, uh, it it hasn't enabled them to to execute their invasion accordingly. And this can be explained at the strategic level. There seems to be have yeah, as, as said, been miscalculations by army officials in planning the offense. Uh, which has left them with with losses in in key battles and and having to kind of find solution in the midst of battle, which <laughs> rarely goes the right way. So I I think it's um, I, I'm not going to speculate uh, whether the the Russian army uh, possesses the resources uh, that are required to sustain an invasion uh, and and the ongoing war. I think of course like the economic sanctions and the losses that they're already experiencing uh, will have an impact that that is going to potentially create other outcomes than than anticipated for for Russia, which it already has. Um, but it's it's going to be interesting to see see what's uh, what what will be the the outcomes going forward, really. Yeah, what I experienced among um, analysts is that the, the narrative has changed a little because at the beginning, there many said that the Russian army was crumbling and it wasn't effective and it was losing and losing. But um, now that they are switched their plans, now that they have entrenched themselves in, in the eastern Donbass, things are changing because the Russian military is able to exploit its size. Um, I remember listening to one um, Ukrainian soldier who, who's in Sebrodonetsk, and he said that when the uh, Ukrainian military is firing um, artillery once, the Russian military is firing um, artillery 10 times. The Russian army has um, refrained from their um, previous goal of taking uh, huge amounts of territory, and they're concentrating on smaller territory and on this smaller territory, they can really use their size and um, shellings do play a substantial role here. And that is why this view has switched. And now there's um, Western analysts are worried that um, the Ukrainian army is about to lose ground. But another thing I heard just listening to, to um, analysts today is that um, in the long run, it, it can be expected that um, the flow of um, Western military support will give Ukraine at least some kind of advantage because Russia has all the sanctions and um, Ukraine gets weapons from the biggest military powers of the world. And in the long run, this will make a difference. But if we look at the upcoming months and if we look at the potential encirclements, this will be tough for the Ukrainian army and um, actually Zelensky himself toned down in his last speeches and he said that the upcoming months and weeks will be hard and um, they might have to make, uh, they might lose territory. So Alexei, um, another thing I wanted to know from you, I want to talk about the, the Russian army and how it's perceived by the Ukrainian people. Are they, would you say the Russian soldiers are feared or would you say they are regarded as fools? What are the different perspectives on them? And would you what what's what's the narrative and how does the Ukrainian media present them? Well, the image of Russian army and Russian soldiers uh, changed dramatically in Ukraine during the first week of the war because the first, second, maybe the third days of war, uh, we as a whole world, were, we were thinking that, uh, all right, they will crush us maybe in one week and it's it just a question of time when we will fall. And um, they were perceived as some kind of indestructible war machine that will come and conquer everything is possible. 
but then we saw that uh, our resistance is quite successful. Our decisiveness to resist is growing up. Uh, we saw a lot of protests. We saw a lot of civil resistance in southern regions, in Kherson, in the Zaporizhia region. And uh, then our perception changed dramatically. Now we see that the problem is in the Russian army is um, their uh, moral and their motivation. And uh, time here works for Ukrainian for Ukrainians um, 100% because every day of this so-called special operation for Russians is it's a question. Why are we here? Why, what we are fighting for? Um, even for them, the goal of this war isn't clear. Uh, first, Putin said, all right, we will denazify or demilitarize Ukraine and and nobody knew what what he saying. Uh, then he said, all right, we will protect only Donetsk and Lugansk people republics. Then some officials and generals said, all right, we will conquer all the south of Ukraine up to Transnistria territory. So if you are a Russian soldier in Kharkiv region, I think for you the question would be like, what the hell I'm doing here? And um, our resistance is growing every day. People, people even switching from Russian to Ukrainian in everyday uh, life in, in on a daily basis, and uh, we understand that. All right, we won some battles near Kiev. We won some battles near Chernihiv. Uh, we have some local success near Kharkiv, and we have to liberate our lands on on south. And after. After the retreat of Russian troops in northern parts of Ukraine, we also understood that every day of occupation for people on occupied territories uh, means uh, some war crimes, uh, murders, uh, rapes, uh, some stealings from, from farmers, from shops, from everything. So every day of occupation for every city or every village in Ukraine means some, some suffer, sufferings. And uh, that motivates a lot of people of Ukraine Overall, like people who are working in IT industry, people who are working as uh, doctors, people like me who are not military, to do something to to help our country, to help other people in Ukraine. And uh, the main difference between two parts of conflict here is their motivation and their understanding what are they fighting for. Because for us, the, the struggle is about to, about Ukrainian survival about our independence and about our freedom for russians i don't know maybe mm, some some material benefits they expect from war like to to loot something to steal something maybe they expect some big payments from their government or something but i think when you risk your life uh, material benefits couldn't be very effective way to uh, to motivate you and if the first weeks of war their propaganda worked on their soldiers they really thought that we are fighting with some Nazis we will liberate some Russian speaking population we will save them they saw the resistance of Russian speaking population in Ukraine in in Kherson in Zaporizhia region in Donetsk in Lugansk in Kharkiv region and uh, overall i think uh, that's one of the problems for them because with some Western weapons and with our Ukrainian courage, I would say Russians have very less, very few options to counter them. Oh, and that last thing that you said, uh, Alexei, I think it really summarizes what I think has been two key elements of how uh, and why Ukrainian resistance has been so well uh, done because of, of two things, right? Which is asymmetric warfare and the motivation of the soldiers, because as we have seen, most of the of the Western aid has not been, well, there had been some helicopters, some tanks, sure, some like strong and heavy weapons of warfare. But I think that the most, uh, like the key element here was all of those anti-aircraft, anti-assault uh, vehicle uh, weapons that have allowed the smaller and more agile uh, units on the ground to destroy bigger and stronger units, like all of those tanks that we've seen in the in the videos, all in the roads destroyed. So I think that those two elements have been key for Ukraine's uh, victories in the last in the last months. However, uh, we have to see, as armies have said, uh, the situation in the Donbas is quite different, right? Because it's mostly fields and open territory. So things might be a little bit more complicated for the Ukrainian uh, resistance there. But it's true that after years of struggle in the area, there's a lot of fortifications and defense positions in that area. So that also might benefit a lot of, of Ukrainian uh, fighters in the region. 
Yeah, Fabio, you were mentioning an important aspect um, um, at the beginning of the war and especially in the north of Ukraine. You had the muddy grounds where many Russian tanks were stuck, where it was hard to sustain supply lines and Russia is not facing this um, problem in this uh, severity um, in the Donbas anymore. But I would suggest that we get to the third block and talk about the potential future of this war. We talked a lot about the situation of the war right now, but how will it develop in the future and what role does the so-called West play? In the public discussion, in the public discourse here in the West, there is a growing view claiming that it is time to explore a ceasefire and peace talks. Some say the war would end sooner if Mr. Putin were given an off-ramp, allowing him to claim some sort of victory at home. Such arguments have an emotional appeal. No one wants an endless war. The longer it lasts, the more people will die, the more homes will be destroyed, the more Ukraine's economy will be ravaged. And the more perilously the supply of grain to the world will be interrupted. If allowing Mr. Putin to save his face would save lives, who could object? Hence, many people are asking, should Ukraine allow Russia to keep some territories to have under their control? So Fabio, what could speak in favor of that and which actors um, are in favor of such yeah. ideas? Well, we have seen different trends, right? Re uh, recently, some, some European uh, countries, the United States, they have different ways to perceive how this uh, should end. And I, I'm going to talk about on the um, on the opinion of our character of this episode. So Henry Kissinger, he's a, a believer of this doctrine called realpolitik, which means that interests should be put above uh, values, right? In international relations. So uh, in this sense, in a um, in a conference a couple of weeks ago, Kissinger said that maybe Ukraine should cede territory uh, to make peace with Russia and become a buffer state instead of uh, continuing to be in the frontier, the, the battle zone. However, uh, as, as we have seen in the past months with all the war crimes that have been committed and just the, the unjustified uh, attacks on civilians, how could Ukraine uh, openly give all of these territories to Russia, you know, and allow all of these Ukrainians living in, in occupied territory to be now uh, pretty much subjects of this uh, regime, right? So in that sense, I think I understand what Kissinger is trying to say, like, all right, uh, in order for things to, to chill down, maybe Putin needs to have this victory and sell it home so the, the, the war stops. However, at the same time, that could be just a, a little victory and a justification for a further attack down the road. I understand the point. I, I don't personally agree with it. I don't think that maybe uh, this will appease Russia and, and I think it's just going to allow them to maybe attack again in, in some months. But at the same time, it's true that the war is going gonna, is gonna to continue. And, and in that sense, uh, destruction and, and more lives will be lost as well. So I think it's a really difficult choice. And at the end, I think uh, this is a matter for all Ukrainians to decide. And also, I read this in an article that if Zelensky decides to just give up this territory, maybe political uh, unity in the country might fall and, and maybe his government will not continue to have as much support as he has right now. I think France and, and the UK, they kind of support this strategy. Some other countries don't. And that's the that's that's the debate right now if, if Russia, if, if Ukraine should allow uh, Russia to keep these territories in order for negotiations to, to lead to a peace agreement. So an important part of Kissinger's argumentation is to shift the um, discussion from Ukrainian people to the large scale migration that could evolve from the famines and from this major food crisis that is developing at the moment. And while I do not agree with Kissinger's argumentation in general, I think he has a very, he raises a very important point here, namely that there is a food crisis about to erupt, which might cause revolutions. And as I've already mentioned, famines, major migration flows. And I'm frankly quite angry that this is still such a major deal because the international community is not reacting to this food crisis. And it will certainly develop in the upcoming months if um, no concrete actions are taken. And the reason why Kissinger is even able to talk about um, this issue is um, because the West is not acting enough on this and not just the West, but the international community in general. 
And I think this issue will become much more relevant in the upcoming months when this crisis will be even much more severe. But okay, let's get back um, to the discussion. Let's get back to the question whether Kissinger's perspective in general is right. Christian, what do you think? Should we let Putin save his face? Will this bring peace and stability? I, I think that it's a very dangerous uh, path to go down to to kind of reward uh, aggression that that Putin has done with this invasion, and and also we we've we saw what happened in in 2014 with with without having the practical Western support, Ukraine had to stand by alone when when Russia annexed Crimea, and and then there has been you know a separatist takeover in the eastern part of the Donbas. And nothing has been handed back from from that. So, I mean, that has also emboldened Putin for 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 this invasion. And and you know, only only time would then tell what would be the next objective. You know, we I think we talked about this also in the earlier episode at the beginning of this war that that there are several other countries uh, and and that are at risk of invasion from from Russia and they are at the moment get preparing for such an invasion so the signal effect that such a handing over of territory to Putin would have would would not be good uh, throughout Europe and I also think that it's I mean it's it's weird for for observers or or Western politicians statesmen and and anyone else than than Ukrainian Ukrainians themselves and not only uh Ukrainian politicians but Ukrainians themselves to be the ones to to decide this I don't think that as an example for example like that an, another country would 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 be okay with giving up a part of itself to to another power right so I I think that is something that is uh, much more up to the Ukrainian people to decide for themselves, and as of what I understand, that is not the case. That um, that they want that to be to be happening. So, so I think we should leave that to to Ukrainians and not not rely on um, old white men with their theories about international politics and how it should be without uh, values or anything to decide what is the reasonable solution to such an uh, such an event, really. Alexei, what's your what's your opinion? Could you imagine that there is currently a majority within Ukraine which would be willing to accept that um, Ukraine cedes more territory than um, before the start of the invasion? Or do you even think that now, after the start of the invasion, the Ukrainian people are actually willing to accept the losses, the existing losses in Donbas and uh, the Crimean Peninsula? Well, with all my respect to Henry Kissinger, I'm more up to Zbigniew Brzezinski, and uh, he is a bit closer for me. Unfortunately, he has, uh, has passed away in uh, 2017, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, well, th there is a clear answer to this question. Uh, there are some recent, very recent polls, like one week ago, uh, of Ukrainian public opinion, and uh, nearly 90% of population of Ukraine are not accepting in any way any uh, compromises with Russia regarding uh, exchange of some some armistice or some peace treaty in exchange of territories so um, we have to have um, we have to have clear two things first wars uh, waging to dramatically change some status quo existed before the war and second part is the wars are waged till you have resources to wage this wars or, or one party have uh, has some resources to wage this war so russia didn't change dramatically situation for itself uh, any russian geopolitical huge goals uh, were not uh, got with russian militaries and for russian politicians they couldn't uh, couldn't shift Ukraine from the West to to their sphere of influence. They couldn't um, divide the West uh, to supporters of Russia and uh, uh, more uh, pro-Ukrainian countries. So for Russia, the story is very far from, from the end. For Ukraine, the same. We couldn't want this war till now, but for us, it's the status quo. Even if we, we will froze the war uh, where where it is right now the the crucial problems between two countries the crucial controversial things uh, will not be solved so 
till two sides of the war will have some resources for this war, the war will continue. Russia unfortunately has a lot of resources to continue this war and Ukraine Ukraine has no options. We we have to find these resources because for us uh, the lack of resources to this war will uh, will mean our destruction as a nation, as is or at least independent nation. So uh, the war will continue, and um, Henry Kissinger's view on this war is very um, like 19th century minded because originally he was a specialist of 19th uh, century history, the Napoleonic Wars and Napoleonic period, and in uh, in that uh, period of time, yeah, maybe such uh, such approach was acceptable. Right now, in these conditions, uh, I think um, it's it's quite un- unacceptable, at least because we, we already had some uh, some saving face for Putin in 2008 in Georgia when they occupied South Ossetia. In 2014, when overall the world, the Western world not accepted the occupation of Crimea, but reacted softly and uh, didn't do any any real strong uh, sanctions, for example, which collapsed Russian economy or something like this. Uh, yeah, they reacted negatively, and they all the Western countries said that we didn't we don't accept the occupation of Crimea, but overall uh they they allowed to russia to get with this and as as a result in 2022 we have another war and if russia will get with this we will have another war maybe in belarus maybe in kazakhstan maybe with baltic countries maybe with poland maybe with ukraine one more time so i think the kissinger's point of view is quite quite theoretical and not practical today yeah i fully agree with you i think Kissinger's solution has been tried many times now. Um, when Russia invaded Georgia at first, I recently made some research about how the West actually reacted to this, and it's pretty laughable because, um, of course, they denounced it. But if we look at the military budgets of the Eastern European Baltic states, if we look at the concrete um, agreements made between the West and Russia after the invasion of Georgia, just a year after um, the war took place, you can actually see that the West didn't actually do a lot about it. They kind of accepted that. And um, Russia wasn't satisfied with that, and Russia continued. So why should Russia suddenly stop? I don't think this is um, within the realms of possibility either. And now I want to draw with you some conclusions. Um, concretely for the scenarios for the end of this war. What do you guys think? How will this turn out in the end? Fabio, what's your opinion? Yeah, well, first of all, I just wanted to say that, yeah, maybe Henry Kissinger will not be really happy with the conclusion of this of this episode. Huh? <laughs> no, but more more um, talking about the topic, I think that we can see, well, I read an article really interesting that said uh, the different scenarios of how this thing could end. One of them said that maybe uh, sort of a, a mutually accepted settlement, not perfect, but it could be uh, approached. And then uh, this competition between the two models of, of, uh, of societal organization between Russia and Ukraine could continue with loss in, less in a brutal mode. But uh, to be honest, I don't think that this will be the case. I don't think that a, a, an agreement with a, such, such an aggressor as Russia is it's, uh, realistic, uh, which leads to this scenario, which is no agreement in Ukraine. So if this happens, which I honestly think is going to be the case, we can expect uh, the continuous maybe uh, cycle of ceasefire and then going back into escalation and, and maybe see what we have seen in, in the Donbass region again, but maybe in a, in a bigger scale. So maybe we're also going to see the continuation of decay and erosion in international uh, bodies and institutions like the UN, like uh, many other uh, forums like that. And I think that we'll also see uh, an acceleration again in arms races, in, the, in nuclear proliferation and the multiplication of regional conflicts. Uh, I think, honestly, I think this will be the case in this uh, situation. I do not see Russia backing down. I do not see the West or Ukraine wanting to appease, uh, appease Russia and give the, the territory and accept the, the loss. So maybe this will be the scenario in my case. Uh, I don't know about you, uh, Chris. What is your conclusions on, the, on, the, on this situation? I'm not really going to speculate that much into, you know, the outcomes of the war in in as in itself. Uh, I, I think it's very hard to predict anything. And also, like, because of the time passed now, that's 
it's created such a wide set of variables that impact the continuation of of the event so uh with such an event uh but i i think it's uh, in 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 another important thought experiments is kind of conceiving how the world uh, world and the global world order is impacted by by the event in the future coming because i think it's uh some things that maybe we don't want to think about and 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 i think it's because we take a lot of things for granted in our world today and and you were touching upon it earlier aramis uh, regarding food shortages uh we're, we're going to experience energy crisis more more volatile uh global markets and 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 that that is kind of some some of the reality that it's becoming increasingly more real for for more people and and as you touched upon the MENA region uh, being impacted by by the wheat production of Russia and Ukraine because of the because of the war that is one thing and then then you have and and energy as as mentioned and so so not to like divert the attention from from the horrible experience of war in Ukraine for the Ukrainian people, which is again, it's important to to express the solidarity with. But but I think for for European peoples who have lived in a very prosperous time since the end of the Second World War and of course like the Cold War, uh, I think a lot of people are unprepared to kind of conceive of the consequences this can have on their daily life. Uh, again, not to be very uh, Eurocentric uh, on that because it's as mentioned, it affects other regions as well globally. So, so these are these are things that are going to be with us for a long time. I yeah, I think there are a lot of a lot of uncertainty to come for a lot of people, and and of course more than more than any other is for the Ukrainian people, which I hope uh, will be able to to experience this war ending in a way that is in in their best interest and and in line with what they see for their country going forward. Yeah, as Chris has already said and. As every expert I listened to so far said that he or she can't predict the outcome of this war, <laughs> I think uh, it would be it would be quite foolish of me to say something different. So yeah, I can just agree that it, that it's hard, impossible to predict the potential outcome. But I think a lot of conclusions can be drawn in the context of a newly emerging world order. I fully agree with you, Christian. I want to lay focus on the relation between the West and China. Because if we think of the periods before the war, when it came to confronting China, many people were questioning, is the US really willing to invest resources to protect its allies, to keep its position as the first world power? Now we have an overwhelming majority in the US Congress. In fact, one of the few things these guys can agree on, which is in favor of keeping or even increasing the enormous US military budget. And we have a strong majority in favor of supporting the Ukrainian military. And ahead of the Brexit referendum, many questioned, and now today this is unthinkable, whether the European Union might fall apart in the near future. Now cooperation between European states is as strong as perhaps never before. And not even Eurosceptics <laughs> like Marine Le Pen dare to question the membership in the Union. In conclusion, I think this war has shown that the West is willing to defend its position as the political and economic leader of the world. And while this might seem self-evident, Europe could have chosen another path. I call it the Hungarian path instead. They could have exclusively subscribed to narrow national interests and progressively subordinate to Eastern powers, as Kissinger might have proposed. But the West decided to overcome boundaries to work together. And this is surprising to some degree. And we shouldn't overestimate those involvements at the, on the other hand. There are still many hurdles if we achieve goals like the EU army or the United States of Europe. And lastly, I want to give um, Oleksi um, the chance to, to draw a conclusion of um, for the end of this war and um, maybe for a conclusion for our discussion in general, perhaps. 
Um, the first and short conclusion is that uh, the war will continue. Uh, Ukrainian society and Russian society under Russianism, Russian fascism regime that they have right now, these two societies are irreconcilable and uncompromising. So there is no possible settlement that will be uh, less or more acceptable for both societies. And if there is no such possibility, the war will continue. Maybe we have some pause, but later, five years later, ten years later, we will have another round of this struggle, of this war. So uh, Russian R Russianism uh, in Russia should be uh, deconstructed. Uh, the second conclusion that um, is more general is quite simple. If Russia wins uh, this war, we will see more chaotic, more uncertain and more unsecure world. Uh, we will see more uh, local conflicts all around the globe. Would it be Middle East? Would it be uh, Asia, Asian Pacific region? Would it be Africa or in any other region on our planet? If Ukraine wins, we will get back to international law world order where the global West, and when I say the global West, it means uh, it, it includes Japan, South Korea, and other many other countries, not only European countries or United States of America. The West will lead this uh, international rule of rule of the international law world order, and we will get to some normal times as we had in the beginning of 2000. But conclusion for the Europeans uh, should be Ukraine must win because for Europe, if Russia will win, the perspectives are very, very dark and very, very uncertain. So if you won't see more bright, more clear future, at least for European continent, you should support Ukraine any way possible. But the, the best option is to donate to Ukrainian army, to Ukrainian volunteering organizations and to Ukrainian volunteering funds. There are plenty of such organizations. I think we will keep some links to them in description of our podcast. And uh, that in that way, you can bring closer the end of this war and uh, make Ukrainian people in e Europe suffer less economically, suffer less politically. And uh, with this support, you bring uh, peace as quickly as it possible. Thank you, Oleksii. And in the last section of our episode, we will draw some recommendations for our listeners connected to what we have spoken about today. And at first, I want to ask Christian, do you have any recommendation for us? I do. It's a, it's a different one than usual. No series, no book, no podcast or whatever I, I i think it's just like a general recommendation for especially when we were dealing with international events like this is trying to find as good of a trusted news source to to get your information on on these issues and and follow fact check news uh, to make sure that you're not being fed uh, fake news that can be very harmful for society and not only this war but uh, a lot of uh, the values that we we grown to love like democracy things like that speaking of reliable sources Alexi, do you have social media where you inform your followers about um, the conflict um the the thing is that usually we receive some information from telegram channels and they are very particular they mostly are in ukrainian or in russian so unfortunately i could not, um, I cannot share all these um, sources that I, I use for my like everyday life or my everyday, everyday analysis. But the experience of work with uh, different international medias like um, El País from Spain or other media and uh, watching other medias working like BBC or New York Times in Ukraine, I would say that they work, uh, they work, their work is very uh, high quality and they put a lot of efforts to show um, the experience we are living in. And uh, I, I see them working like shoulder by shoulder with, with me in the same places, uh, with the same people, with uh, the same uh, functionaries or organizations here in Ukraine. And I think um, any, any Western media or almost any Western media working in Ukraine uh, is quite reliable and uh, quite um, high quality source of news on, uh, and information what's happening right now uh, in Ukraine. Yeah, connected to this, um, I want to give you my recommendation actually for this episode. 
sometimes it can be hard to keep up with the war in Ukraine. And there's actually a great podcast from The Telegraph, which is called Ukraine, the latest, where they talk nearly every day for um, an hour or half an hour about the war and the latest development. And I think it's a great source of news to learn more about um, latest developments and how the world is reacting to it. Fabio, what is your recommendation for us? Yes, guys. So, well, I would like to recommend uh, Servant of the People. This is a TV series. Uh, it's now in Netflix, and I don't know if you guys know about it, but the main protagonist, it's Mr. Volodymyr Zelensky. He started his political uh, career as, uh, well, he was a comedian, he was an actor, and in this series, he's a professor which fed up with the Ukrainian oligarchs and corruption, so he runs at his students and, and they record him and this video becomes viral and long story short, he becomes the Ukrainian president. And in reality, he did become the Ukrainian president and I find it amazing that now the the man that's holding the country, you could say together and like with all these information campaigns and trying to portray the war and the narrative in, in such a way, like you can, you can maybe watch this series and understand like all of these media uh, an entertainment industry has helped his team to sell this this narrative, this story, and I think that his information team is is amazing. The way that they have portrayed the war and and their efforts to stand against Russia. So I think that this is an interesting series to watch. Just to maybe uh, go back to to where it started. Yeah, thank you, Fabio. I watched the series as well. And for people like me who are learning um, Ukrainian and Russian at the moment, it's also a great source to to get some insight into that. Um, Oleksi, do you have a recommendation for us? Yeah, um, uh, I just remember uh, one source that could be affordable, um, not affordable, uh, that could be available for English-speaking uh, people. It's called Institute for Sto for the Study of War, and they publish uh, their um, like summaries for every day of war, and they usually publish uh, some maps of war of very combat zones in the thousand Ukraine of the in the east of Ukraine uh, that's one of the best sources uh, and one of the best open source intelligence uh, organization that uh, right now are covering uh, all what's happening in Ukraine yes um, I've heard many military experts citing from those very reports thank you Alexei I, I think that it's uh, such a horrible situation what many Ukrainians are living and it, 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 it's a shame that everything that has happened it's just because of the will of one single man. So I think that the world should stand together more now than ever against these types of atrocities and, and put it as, 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 uh, as the spotlight on all of the atrocities that are being committed in Ukraine. And, and thanks to people such as you, Oleksii, uh, this story has been uh, put in an approach to regular people just like me. And, uh, people I know. So thank you very much for everything that you do, and especially because it's in Spanish. And, and I think that Spanish-speaking people sometimes struggle trying to find information in their language. So th thank you so much, Alexi, for doing that in Spanish as well. And thank you to everybody of you, especially Alexi. I'm so thankful that you came today. It was really, truly interesting to listen. Also, um, frankly, quite hard as we are sitting here in the safe West and listening to, to the sufferings of the Ukrainian people. It's, it's not easy to, to react for us and to find the right moral stance in, in such perilous times. But yeah, thank you for finding your time nevertheless. And I think this is also a good moment to express our condolences with the Ukrainian people.